On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Thank you for the beautiful song, one of my favorites. Our topic today is Ahimsa in Our Violent World. And it seems so relevant to think of nowadays because the world really seems to be the antithesis of Ahimsa. It seems so very violent. So many wars are going on and so much armed conflict between countries, unspeakable horrors and atrocities being committed. And everywhere it seems like the solution to a problem is to bomb, to shoot, to kill. And uh, even if we look at American society, we find that American society itself has a lot of violence embedded deep within it. For instance, this afternoon, uh, we were paying uh, a, a group of men uh, very large sums of money to try to, to uh, run into each other and smash into each other's bodies and basically destroy each other's bodies uh, for our enjoyment. Uh, so the, pop- <laughs> the violent sports are very popular in America, boxing, football, etc., etc., and movies and television, for most of the popular movies, it's, there's going to be some shooting in it. Under video games, how popular the video games are, the, the uh, shoot-em-ups. And uh, all of this, uh, it stimulates excitement and fear and propagates this cycle of violence, propagates this idea that, yeah, violence is a, is a legitimate way to handle our problems. It's a that violent force is often necessary. So Ahimsa stands in direct opposition to this idea. Ahimsa, it means more than just non-violence. It means non-injury. Hims, the root hims means to strike, to kill, to injure. So when we put an up before it, that means the opposite, ahimsa, not to injure, not to kill, not to strike. It's helpful to understand it as a, not as a negative something, but rather as a positive force, a positive force, a positive attitude of not inflicting any harm through our body, 
through our speech and even with our thoughts. Towards other persons, towards animals, even towards plants and things, and last of all, but not least, towards ourselves. So, it clearly operates on different levels to uh, the, a, a gross injury to slap someone or kill someone. Most of us, I think, have gone beyond that stage where we feel that we have to physically injure someone. But we can also injure someone very much with our speech, despite the old nursery rhyme. Sticks and stones break our bones and words also hurt a lot. Even more subtle injury is to think harmful thoughts. Think of injuring. One thing I, which struck me when thinking about this very violent world, which, which seems like it's more violent than it was, is to just take a little look at history. For instance, uh, in our Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna itself, M is having a conversation with Sri Ramakrishna, and he says, uh, he he quotes Vidyasagar, one of the pundits of the day, who says, what is the use of calling on God? Just think of this incident. At one time, Genghis Khan plundered a country and imprisoned many people. The number of prisoners rose to about 100,000. The commander of his army said to him, Your Majesty, who will feed them? It is risky to keep them with us. It will be equally dangerous to release them. What shall I do? Genghis Khan said, That's true. What can be done? Well, have them killed. The order was accordingly given to cut them to pieces. So this is Genghis Khan. Estimated, uh, I did a little research, it's estimated that under his leadership, some 30 million people were killed. 30 million people. So... Uh, If we look back into history, we see war and war. Athens and Sparta fighting. Then they join against the Trojans. It's the Greeks against the Trojans. There's evidence of warfare going back 13,000 years. And uh, Thoreau, the transcendentalist, who spent a lot of time at his pond in Walden, uh, enjoying the peace, discovered one day that there were two armies of ants having a war right outside the cabin. He says, It was the only battle which I have ever witnessed, the only battlefield I ever trod while the battle was ranging. In Ternocene War, the Red Republicans on the one hand and the Black Imperialists on the other. On every side they were engaged in deadly combat, yet without any noise that I could hear, and human soldiers never fought so resolutely. Okay, so even the ants have wars. So the conclusion that uh, we can draw is that this world is a place of conflict, a place where violent things do happen. It's actually in the realm of duality. And here we have what we call the pairs of opposites, the dwandos. We have heat and we have cold. We have pleasure and we have pain. We have peace and we have conflict, we have both. The ocean is calm, and again the ocean is lashed into waves. So in such a world, where is the place for ahimsa? Is there a place that even even when 
we are faced with all this violence and all this harming, is there a place for not harming, for practicing non-injury? Swami Vivekananda says, The strong take everything, the weak go to the wall, the poor are waiting, the man who can take will take everything, the poor hate that man. Why? Because they are waiting their turn. So what then does Ahimsa give us? The wall? Ahimsa, as I understand it, is a path to freedom from fear. But the important thing to know is it is not a path of weakness. It is a path of great strength. It requires great strength to escape, to break free of this cycle of violence and retribution. And in Vedanta and yoga, we know it is very important. Patanjali, our writer of the yoga aphorisms, names it as the very first discipline, the very first ethical discipline to take up when we decide to get serious about spiritual life. Ahimsa is the first discipline. The foundation of ethical and spiritual life, the foundation of yoga. So, I'd like to delve a little deeper into the practice of ahimsa. Vedantic thinkers find that there are three sources of pain in life. The, the three tapa, they call it. The three fires. Adhidaivika, adhibhotika, and adhyatmika. From, we, we, we suffer from natural calamities. There's a thunderstorm, earthquake, forest fire, drought, flood, tsunami, lightning strike, etc. The natural world itself can seem very menacing, very angry, but actually there's no malice behind it. It's just in the nature of the world. There's no intent to harm when a lightning strike uh, strikes someone down. Then we have adhyatmika, caused by our own self. Our own body has disease. Our own mind causes us pain. That's the illness and misery of our own minds fall in this category. Then there's misery and suffering caused by other beings. Animal, mosquitoes sting us, hmm? bees and wasps, animals, and also from other human beings. In, in the animal kingdom, we see a lot of seeming violence, hunting, ant wars, uh, but there's no malice behind it. All, we see that all life depends on other life. Practically, all living creatures kill other living creatures. And it is not possible to live without taking life. The great wheel of sacrifice is going on. We see that uh, killer whales eat seals, Tigers eat antelopes and sometimes people. Cows eat grass, but they depend on the life of the grass and how many insects may be killed in the eating of the grass. We don't see malice here. It's just hunger. But in the case of human beings, we see something else. We see conscious efforts to harm others, just for the sake of harm, actively seeking to inflict harm perhaps in retribution, perhaps in anger, perhaps in en envy, jealousy. The fact remains that people harm other people with their bodies, with their words, and in their thoughts. 
So it is human beings then who actually perform himsa, this trying to injure. So it is to human beings especially that ahimsa applies. It's easy to decry all the violence that we see and all the wars and all that. Uh, but it's very difficult to root out that tendency in our own hearts. And can we see where that tendency is within us? As long as we find it within us, we're going to see it out there also. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author, addresses this idea with a beautiful quote from his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He, sa- he writes, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But... The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? It's a beautiful quote. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It's not that there are some evil people somewhere that we need to destroy and then everything will be all right. That line is right here also. So the practice of ahimsa, I think, is we can look at it as trying to erase that line in our heart, trying to remove that, that line, trying to uproot that tendency to harm others fully and completely, that tendency which separates us from each other and separates us from God. So ahimsa is a radical approach. It's completely opposite the tendency we find in the world, which we have internalized. We have internalized the uh, idea that it's okay to uh, throw our finger out the window at a, at a driver who cuts us off or to sh- sh- uh, curse out our boss or, or whatever it is to, to uh, seek revenge to avenge a wrong. And our mental life, our fantasy life, could be filled with these kinds of things, of what I would have told my boss and all that. These, these, uh, this uh, ahimsa is the completely opposite approach. It involves a fundamental shift in our attitude towards the world. We refrain from any action that harms another, any word that harms another, and this is the tough one, any thought that harms another. And why, why would we do it? Freedom. Peace and freedom. Freedom from fear, peace of mind. This desire to harm, this tendency to harm is actually a knot tying us to pain and misery. Every time we harm someone, we tie that knot a little tighter. That's the knot of ego, the knot of ignorance. We shall never have inner peace. We shall never be free from fear so long as we harbor this attitude that harming others is okay or needed or can bring good. So there are two motivations for practicing 
ahimsa. First of all, we can recognize that harming others actually also harms ourselves. Both karmically, as we do some vicious act, if we accept the idea of karma, we can, we will have to accept that as we harm someone, we also shall be harmed. And literally also, in the sense that as Vedantists, we recognize that we are all connected. We are all one, essentially. And as we harm others, we harm ourselves because we are at basis in unity. Swami Vivekananda says, and this is a, a good, something to tell, something we can remind ourselves when we start thinking nasty thoughts. Every vicious thought will rebound. Every thought of hatred which you may have thought, in a cave even, is stored up and will one day come back to you with tremendous power in the form of some misery here. If you project hatred and jealousy, they will rebound on you with compound interest. No power can avert them. When once you have put them in motion, you will have to bear them. Remembering this, will prevent you from doing wicked things. This is Swami Vivekananda in Raja Yoga. A great reminder that even to think harmful thoughts is harmful for us. So why not give it up? Then... uh, Another attitude we, ta- we can take in the practice of ahimsa is to strengthen our conviction that all beings are manifestations of God. In Vedanta we say, yes, all beings are manifestations of God. If that's so, if we are devotees of God, why should we want to harm another being who is a manifestation of our beloved? That's the devotional approach or the wisdom approach. Convinced that the same principle that's manifesting here is also manifesting there. We are not separate beings. We are one. In harming another, I harm myself. Swami Vivekananda says, A yogi must not think of injuring anyone by thought, word, or deed. Mercy shall not be for men alone but shall go beyond and embrace the whole world. So we see how here ahimsa is expanded to mean a positive force. Our mercy shall embrace the whole world. So it's a practice that requires constant watchfulness over our minds, over not only our acts and our words, but our thoughts. Not only towards others, but also towards ourselves. Some people may not harm others, but they harm themselves. This, is also, this also violates the principle of ahimsa. So it really requires a healing of our minds, reorienting ourselves to the world and its inhabitants, not seeing others as rivals, as enemies, as against us, but as children of God or as manifestations of the divine, as connected to myself. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Here Jesus seems to be preaching the very summit of Ahimsa, in which one not only refrains from doing harm actively, but even of resisting evil. One accepts even physical harm done to oneself without complaint. Now Jesus is speaking here to his intimate disciples who are walking the highest path, you can say. They are, they are um, his message bearers. I've been thinking over this quote and this teaching of Jesus and this non-resistance, it's allied with ahimsa, but I think it's not quite the same thing. For most of us, we must resist evil. Most of us must resist evil. In fact, Gandhiji's message of uh, Satyagraha involved resistance Nonviolent resist, resistance not harm, without harming. There's a great difference between resisting without harming and not resisting. For Gandhiji, Ahimsa was a powerful force. So Ahimsa it may be a little bit closer to non-retaliation. We don't retaliate against those who harm us or insult us. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't resist it. Swami Vivekananda uh, explains, all great teachers have taught resist not evil, that non-resistance is the highest moral ideal. We all know that if a certain number of us attempted to put that maxim fully into practice, the whole social fabric would fall to pieces. The wicked would take possession of our properties and our lives and would do whatever they like with us. Even if only one day of such resistance were practiced, it would lead to disaster. So then he goes on to say, we must recognize that duty and morality vary under different circumstances. Not that the man who resists evil is doing what is always and in itself wrong, but that in the different circumstances in which he is placed, it may become even his duty to resist evil. Sister Nivirita records an interesting interchange between Swami Vivekananda and a questioner who, who came to ask him, Ought one to seek an opportunity of death in defense of right? Or ought one to learn never to react? Okay, do we seek death in defense of right or learn never to react? Was the problem put to him. I am for no reaction, said the Swami, speaking slowly and with a long pause. Then he added, for sannyasins, self-defense for the householder. So here we see, uh, depending on one's station in life, one's application of ahimsa will be different. The police officer may have to strike, even to shoot. But if he is practicing or she is practicing ahimsa, there will be no desire to harm in the mind. No desire to harm connected with our actions. 
another way to look at this may be Sri Ramakrishna's story of the cobra. I think most of you know it. There was a vicious cobra once upon a time. There, there was a vicious cobra that lived in a field. And the boys who used to live in that village used to, wanted to play in the field, but they couldn't because of the cobra. They would keep away from that field. And were always frightened to go near. But one, one day there was a holy man walking along, and he started to enter the field, and the boys told him, Revere sir, don't go there. There's a terrible, vicious snake there. He'll bite you and kill you. Oh, don't worry, my children. I know some mantras, said the holy man. And he went into the field on his way. And sure enough, the snake came up and reared up its hood and started hissing. And the holy man chanted his mantras, and the snake fell down at his feet like an earthworm. So the holy man taught the, initiated the snake into spiritual life and taught it not to harm others and uh, uh, became its guru and gave it a, a new name and all of that. So the snake was now initiated in spiritual life and instructed not to harm others. So the holy man said, now practice what I have told you and I'll come back to see you in a year's time. So what happened was the boys, after some time, noticed that the snake was no longer coming after them. The snake was no longer raising its hood if uh, they happened to see it. So uh, they started throwing stones and sticks at it sometimes. And they found that the snake is still, it's not coming after them. The snake, in the meanwhile, he was, it was uh, living on fruits and uh, roots and things without, without killing animals. And uh, so the boys were getting bolder and bolder. And one day one of them boldly ran up behind it grabbed it by the tail, swung it around his head and smashed it on the ground. And it started vomiting blood and it looked like it was dead. So the boys were happy and they left. Late that night, the snake crawled back to his hole and somehow, after that, it wouldn't come out. It didn't die, but it was severely injured. It wouldn't come out during the day. It would only come out at night and somehow managed to find something to eat. So a year went by and the holy man was coming by there again. And he asked the boys, hey, have you seen that snake? And they said, oh, no, the snake is dead. It's gone. But the holy man knew, how can that, thought, how can that be? I have given it a mantra. It can't just die like that. So he went into the field and called it by its name. And it came out. And uh, the holy man saw, goodness, you're so thin. What happened to you? Oh, well, I'm now uh, only eating fruits and uh, fruits and things like that. I'm, I'm not uh, killing any animals. You instructed me, so uh, that's, that's why I'm thin now, Master. The snake had attained the quality of sattva, of peacefulness and gentleness. So it didn't even remember that the boys had tried to kill it. So the uh, holy man said, well, there must be some other reason. Just think, what happened? Oh, yes, sir. Now I remember the boys, they, they didn't know that I wasn't harming them anymore, so they, were, they thought I would still harm them. So one of them grabbed me and smashed me on the ground. Then the holy man said, You fool, I told you not to bite. I didn't tell you not to hiss. <laughs> That's the story. I didn't, tell you not to, I didn't tell you not to hiss, just not to bite. So Sri Ramakrishna would say, you must hiss at wicked people. You must frighten them, lest they should do you harm. But never inject your venom into them. One must not injure others. 
This is the teaching of Sri Ramakrishna. A devotee asked him once, Sir, if a wicked man is about to do harm, or actually does so, should we keep quiet then? Sri Ramakrishna replied, A man living in society should make a show of tamas to protect himself from evil-minded people. But he should not harm anybody in anticipation of harm likely to be done him. So in anticipation of harm likely to be done him, there's no... uh, permission from Sri Ramakrishna to inflict harm. To make a show of tamas, this means to hiss. Like the snake, to hiss. But not actually harming. Sri Ramakrishna did not like weakness. M, his disciple, the recorder of the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, said, told him one day, at mealtime, sometimes a cat stretches out its paw to take the fish from my plate but I cannot show any resentment. M is trying to practice. Maybe he's becoming a little too much like the snake. And Sri Ramakrishna said, Why? You may even beat it once in a while. What's the harm? A worldly man should hiss, but he shouldn't pour out his venom. He mustn't actually injure others, but he should make a show of anger to protect himself from enemies. Otherwise, they will injure him. But... A sannyasi need not even hiss. So, this is the delicate line we have to walk, uh, practicing ahimsa, and yet, at times, it may be necessary for us to hiss. Swami Vivekananda, uh, talking about this, this... practice of ahimsa, but not becoming a doormat. We are not to become a doormat. Non-injury is right, he says. Resist not evil is a great thing. These are indeed grand principles. But this is a thing which should not be forgotten. Heroes only enjoy the world. Show your heroism. Otherwise, you live a disgraceful life if you pocket your insults when you are kicked and trodden down by anyone who takes it into his head to do so. Your life is a veritable hell, here, and so is the life hereafter. Of course, do not do any wrong. Do not injure or tyrannize over anyone. But try to do good to others as much as you can. But passively to submit to wrong done by others is a sin. So here we see this idea which Gandhiji also took, that it's, it's not passively uh, resisting, it's resisting without harming. There's a big difference. And ahimsa itself requires great strength. If it, if it comes from weakness, it is not ahimsa at all. There's the beautiful example of uh, Sri Ramakrishna's two disciples, Swami, the future Swami Yogananda and Swami Niranjanananda. At that time they were called Yogan and Niranjan. Now, Yogan was coming by boat from Calcutta to Dakshineshwar to see his master. And there were some people on the boat who started criticizing Sri Ramakrishna and speaking ill of him. And naturally, Yogan was upset. But he kept quiet. He thought, well, they don't know him. Uh, what do they know? I don't have to say anything. So he bore it all the way to, to Dakshineshwar. He bore the uh, criticisms of these uh, other passengers about his spiritual teacher. 
when he came to Sri Ramakrishna and told them, told him about it, he thought Sri Ramakrishna would be pleased with him for not speaking up for bearing the, the difficulties. Sri Ramakrishna said, what? They were speaking ill of me and you didn't say anything? Shame on you. The scriptures say you should cut off the head of a person who insults your guru. <laughs> so that was a big scolding for Yogan. Now Niranjan, he was also another time coming from Calcutta to Dakshineshwar by boat. And some people started speaking ill of Sri Ramakrishna on the boat, started abusing him. Sri Ramakrishna had a reputation for being a, a madman or for turning the heads of the young men. So whatever it may be, they were uh, insulting Sri Ramakrishna. And Nirandan, he uh, immediately spoke up. He had a fiery nature. He said, hey, what is this? Stop. No, you don't know him. He's a good man. But they didn't stop. They kept criticizing him. Nirandan became angry. And uh, it ultimately came to the point that he, he stood up in the boat and started rocking it back and forth and said, either you stop or I'm going to sink the boat. Then they got frightened. So when, Ra- when Niranjan reached Sri Ramakrishna and t- told him what had happened, he, sa- he said, what? You are going to drown all those people just because they are a few words? What about the boatman? He wasn't saying anything. You were going to drown him too? So he scolded him. Same circumstances. They both found themselves in the same circumstances. Yogan was given the instructions to speak up. Niranjan was given the instruction, hey, t- tone it down. Swami Vivekananda, I I think this gives an insight. One man does not resist because he is weak, lazy, and cannot, not because he will not. The other man knows that he can strike an irresistible blow if he likes, yet he not only does not strike, but blesses his enemies. The one who from weakness resists not commits a sin, and as such cannot receive any benefit from the non-resistance, while the other would commit a sin by offering resistance. So this gives an, gives an idea that Yogan was uh, perhaps a little too timid. And here we see the same uh, thing in the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna, the consummate warrior, the best warrior there was, he suddenly seeing that he has to kill his, uh, his family members on the other side. He gets weak knees. He, 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 uh, he says, no, it will be better not to resist. But Krishna, of course, as we know, he, he recognizes that this is not a genuine non-resistance. Arjuna is a warrior. He's afraid to kill his... He's, he's afraid to do his duty here. So uh, Krishna correctly understands that this attitude of Arjuna's is cowardice, springs not, springing not from sattva, but from tamas. But he instructs him how to fight as an instrument, not without feeling that he is killing with the knowledge that he is a mere instrument, that it is only the bodies which are killed, not the dwellers within the body. So when we put the practice of ahimsa, when we practice ahimsa in our own lives, we have to, we can ask ourselves, how, to what extent are we going to apply it? How far can we take it? If we embrace the practice of ahimsa, how might that affect our lives? One area is in, the, uh, in, in our profession. It would seem to be more difficult to practice ahimsa as a butcher. 
it would seem to me, at least. What about as a chemist, working on a research project funded by the military, the results of which might be used to build a more powerful bomb? Or what about as a biologist, even more tricky, who's uh, researching a vaccine for uh, some terrible disease, but as part of the research uh, has to infect animals with the disease and inflict a lot of misery onto the animals, trying to find a cure. So these are questions we have to answer for ourselves. They are difficult questions. How far we'll take this practice of ahimsa? What about our investments? Many of us may have invested in the stock market. And some of our investments may be in companies that uh, profit from uh, inflicting harm. Smith and Wesson or whatever it may be. (laughs) Buddha, to his students, Buddha specifically forbade certain professions to his followers. He forbade them to trade in weapons, to trade in human beings, like slavery and prostitution, to uh, trade in meat, to trade in drugs and alcohol, and to trade in poisons. These professions Buddha forbade his followers to take up. Then there is the very controversial and and, uh, topic, which always leads to hot discussions, of vegetarianism. (laughs) (laughs) Swami Vivekananda Here, he also points out the question of context. He says, After carefully scrutinizing all sides of the question and setting aside all fanaticism that is rampant on this delicate question of food, I must say that my conviction tends to confirm this view, that the Hindus are, after all, right. I mean, that that injunction of the Hindu Shastras, which lays down the rule that food like many other things, must be different according to the difference of birth and profession. This is the sound conclusion. So he tends not to give any definite prescription for vegetarianism. However, he does say, I I myself may not be a very strict vegetarian, and he wasn't. But I understand the ideal. When I eat meat, I know it is wrong. Even if I am bound to eat it under certain circumstances, I know it is cruel. I must not drag my ideal down to the actual and apologize for my weak conduct in this way. The ideal is not to eat flesh, not to injure any being, for all animals are my brothers. If you can think of them as your brothers you have made a little headway towards the brotherhood of all souls, not to speak of the brotherhood of man. So I think I'll leave that topic now because we have strong feelings on both sides of it. And uh, you probably know that the monks of the Ramakrishna order, are, are some of them are vegetarian and some are not. And it's not a, a requirement for uh, membership in Vedanta society or attendance at our functions or anything like that. (laughs) Swami Vivekananda wanted that religion should get out of the kitchen. And as long as we're arguing about food, our religion is basically still in the kitchen. 
So I'd like to talk a little more about the practice. How do we curb our tendency to harm others? I think the most important thing is to be aware of it, just to notice that we have this tendency. Watch it. Here we find the importance of meditation. And second, we have to be convinced that it's desirable to overcome this tendency, desirable and possible, that it will lead to freedom. In this regard, it's interesting to see what Patanjali says about the practice of ahimsa. What happens when we become steadfast in ahimsa? He says, when one becomes steadfast in ahimsa, then in his or her presence, enmities in others cease. That means someone who is really established in ahimsa, other people will not fight in the presence of that person. Ahimsa pratishtayam tat sannidho vairatyagaha. Swami Prabhavananda and Christopher Ishu would make this comment. The perfected harmlessness of the saint is by no means ineffectual. It has a positive psychological force of tremendous power. When a man has truly and entirely renounced violence in his own thoughts and in his dealings with others, he begins to create an atmosphere around himself within which violence and enmity must cease to exist because they find no reciprocation. There's a wonderful example uh, uh, in Peace Pilgrim. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Peace Pilgrim. She was an, an American saint, we can say, uh, uh, like a sannyasini, like a wandering nun uh, who owned only the clothes on her back and the, uh, the few th- items in her pockets. And she was utterly and totally dedicated to peace. And clearly from her writings, there's a book written by her as an read it reads like an autobiography but it was actually put together by her uh, friends and uh, followers uh, from her letters and conversations so here uh, she tells this story which is a beautiful uh, description of the practice of ahimsa in the face of a great challenge She calls it a test. She was tested here. On another occasion, I was called upon to defend a frail eight-year-old girl against a large man who was about to beat her. The girl was terrified. It was my most difficult test. I was staying at a ranch, and the family went into town. The little girl did not want to go with them, and they asked, since I was there, would I take care of the child? I was writing a letter by the window when I saw a car arrive. A man got out of the car. The girl saw him and ran, and he followed, chasing her into a barn. I went immediately into the barn. The girl was cowering in terror in the corner. He was coming at her slowly and deliberately. I put my body immediately between the man and the girl. I just stood and looked at this poor, psychologically sick man with loving compassion. He came close. He stopped. He looked at me for quite a while. 
Then he turned and walked away, and the girl was safe. There was not a word spoken. Now, what was the alternative? Suppose I had been so foolish as to forget the law of love by hitting back and relying upon the jungle law of tooth and claw. Undoubtedly, I would have been beaten, perhaps even to death, and possibly the little girl as well. Never underestimate the power of God's love. It transforms. It reaches the spark of good in the other person, and the person is disarmed. This is a perfect example of uh, Patanjali's uh, description of uh, becoming established in Ahimsa. Peace Pilgrim was really established in peace, in not harming others. So when she placed herself between this man, intent on doing harm to a, a helpless girl, that power, that positive power of her love, of her ahimsa, transformed the man, enough at least that he backed off and went away. When we are faced with a situation in which we wish to respond harshly, can we examine our motives? Is it just retaliation? Are we acting in anger? Then we can wait. My rule, never send an angry email. I've written many angry emails. Some beautiful emails I've written. Thank God I didn't send them. <laughs> that nowadays, email, you can, you can save it. It's like writing the letter. When we used to write the letter, we'd, we'd write it angry, and we put it on the desk, and in the morning we'd, we think we'll post it in the morning, and in the morning we realize we can't send this. So we throw it out. With email, it's so easy just to click send. But it's a, it's a good practice. If, it's a, if, we're, if we're feeling angry while we're writing it, write it, no problem. And just save it. I don't even put the name in the, in the to field, just in case I hit <laughs> send by accident. <laughs> I'll leave that part blank and write a beautiful email. And then after a day or two, I can delete it. Swami Vivekananda gives us a test of ahimsa. The test of ahimsa, he says, is absence of jealousy. Absence of jealousy is the test of ahimsa. He says, a man may do a good deed or make a good gift on the spur of the moment or under the pressure of some superstition or priestcraft. But the real lover of mankind is he who is jealous of none. It's interesting, I, when reading this, that uh, jealousy should be called the test of ahimsa. Jealousy, d hidden within jealousy, there is some desire to harm, evidently, because we feel uncomfortable that someone has something that we want, and we f there's a negative feeling towards that person. That itself is ahimsa, that itself is a, a, an intent to harm. So he says, so long as this jealousy exists in a heart, it is far away from the perfection of ahimsa. So, ahimsa, uh, well, well, first of all, clearly the practice of ahimsa involves curbing all the passions, jealousy, anger, uh, lust, 
all greed, all these passions which store up our minds and cause us to do things which actually we don't want to do. Uh, and it, so it involves curbing all our passions and it, invo- it seems to be connected to the practice of tatiksha, of forbearance, of uh, bearing difficulties without complaint. It's quite easy to be harmless when everything is going, when we are alone or when everything is going just fine, everything is hunky-dory, it's easy to, not to harm anyone. But when things go contrary, when people become contrary, then it gets tough. And that's where the practice of the tiksha comes in, to bear all difficulties without reaction. Now, we always, we, there is always a tendency among some people to take things a little too far. And Swami Vivekananda points this out, uh, that the practice of ahimsa also can be taken too far. He says, A good practice carried to an extreme and worked in accordance with the letter of the law becomes a positive evil. The stinking monks of certain religious sects who do not bathe lest the vermin on their bodies should be killed never think of the discomfort and disease they bring to their fellow human beings. So probably talking about certain Jain monks. Jainism takes the practice of ahimsa to the highest level. Some of the Jain monastics, they wear even a cloth over their mouth so as not to inhale any insects or injure any insects and walk with a little broom to sweep the insects out of the path. And apparently some of them don't even bathe so as to avoid harming the Uh, little critters living on their bodies. But in doing so, they cause a lot of difficulty to others. The stinking monks, as uh, Swamiji puts it. (laughs) So we need not go that far. I'd like to close by just mentioning a couple of of interesting incidents. Uh, Balaram Bose, one of Sri Ramakrishna's disciples, uh, was a Vaishnava, and uh, he was uh, a b- great believer in ahimsa, in the practice of non-injury, so much so that he didn't even want to kill a mosquito. Now, after associating with Sri Ramakrishna for a couple of years, he began to feel that really the goal of life is to realize God. That's the, that's the one goal, to keep our minds on God. And that probably, therefore, if these mosquitoes are really distracting me, if I kill them and I can that way meditate better, maybe it's all right. But he had this orthodox upbringing, so he doubted this idea. He doubted this reasoning, and he found himself in a real dilemma. Is it all right to kill the mosquitoes or not? So he went to Dakshineshwar to ask Sri Ramakrishna about it. And what did he find? Arriving at Dakshineshwar, he found to his great surprise that Sri Ramakrishna was outside, shaking out his pillow and killing the bedbugs that were in the pillow. And uh, as Balaram approached him and saluted him, Sri Ramakrishna said, there are many bedbugs breeding in my pillow. They bite me day and night, create distraction of the mind, and keep me from sleeping. So I am killing them. So Balaram's question was answered by Sri Ramakrishna without him even having to mention it. This is one interesting incident. Another incident uh, which gives us something to think about. Swami Vivekananda was on a boat uh, going back to India between Aden and Colombo. And I'll read from the life of Swami Vivekananda. Uh, there, were two fe- there were two of his fellow passengers on, uh, on the boat. They were Christian missionaries who insisted on discussing the contrast between Hinduism and Christianity. 
Their methods of argument were most offensive when they were beaten at every point and arguing with Swami Vivekananda, you can imagine they would be beaten at every point very quickly. They lost their temper and became virulent and abused the Hindus and their religion. The Swami stood it as long as he could. Then, walking close to one of the speakers, he suddenly seized him quietly but firmly by the collar and said, half humorously, half grimly, if you abuse my religion again, I'll throw you overboard. The frightened missionary shook in his boots and said under his breath, let me go, sir, I'll never do it again. From that time on, he was most obsequious to the Swami on all occasions and endeavored to remedy his misbehavior by exceeding kindness. So it's an interesting incident. Of course, Swami Vivekananda wouldn't actually have thrown him overboard. But here, uh, even sannyasin that he was, he had this great power and he manifested it in this way. Sri Ramakrishna says, In the presence of a wicked person, I become alert. If such a man asks me whether I have a pipe for smoking, I say, yes, I have. Some people have the nature of a snake. They will bite you without warning. You have to discriminate a great deal in order to avoid the bite. Otherwise, your passion will be stirred up to such an extent that you will feel like doing an injury in return. This is a beautiful point. Be careful in the presence of others who may harm you or insult you. Why? Because otherwise your passion will be stirred up and you will want to do an injury in return. So here Sri Ramakrishna says, the, the emphasis is on not doing an injury in return. So he would say, salute the wicked from a distance. Salute the tiger god from a distance. So in conclusion, I would like to offer the thought that uh, in this violent world, seemingly violent world, ahimsa is a radical reorientation of ourselves to others. It is a spiritual discipline leading to perfection. And it is most needed. Inflicting harm never brings peace. The means determine the end. So means full of himsa, means full of harming others, will never bring peace. And again, the seeds of war and violence are in every human heart. So practicing ahimsa means plucking out those seeds from our own hearts. And when large numbers of people become established in ahimsa, then peace will come of itself by the influence of their vibrations through the force the positive force of their ahimsa. And we are all called, as Vedantists, to take up the practice earnestly, attain peace for ourselves, and shed that light of peace on the world, usher in an era of peace in the world.